This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on today's episode in conversation with best-selling author, motivational speaker, Robin Sharma. We were talking about leadership, success and sleep. Are you part of his 5am club? We had lawyer Devon and Mahadeva in the studio as we discussed family law, everything from inheritance to wills here in the UAE. Where are your options and what is going to protect you the most all the way through divorce as well? And in conversation with 16-year-old Tia, who has broken a staggering Guinness World Record, all in the name of inclusion. Devnid Mahadeva is the Director and Head of Inheritance and Personal Law Practice at Baker Tilly Law Corporation. He is our man of the hour to hold our hand through family law and so much more. We like looking at the headlines, but we also like getting a bit of a read of what people are talking about here in the UAE. And I saw a couple of posts recently, Devnid, and I was like, I need to ask the expert. People taking photos of us or our children makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable. but I wondered what the law says. How protected are we? And what can we do in those situations? What's your take? As per the laws in this country, nobody can take a photo of another person. It's not legally allowed. So if you get a permission from a person and you take a picture, that's a different issue altogether. But then uh, on a random person cannot come and take a photo of, forget children, even the adults. Okay, so here's my question. It's happened to us, you know, a couple of times. And I think sometimes it feels very well-meaning and innocent. And especially, you know, if children have certain kind of physical traits that might be deemed unusual. Um, People won't have photos with them or take a photo to show their family member. Sometimes it can feel more sinister. And as a parent, you get that that ick factor. Um, If someone does it without your permission and you clock them, you see them do it. What rights do you have in terms of asking them to destroy that photo? And what ownership do you have in saying, you know, delete that in front of me now? Yeah, you can. What if they refuse? You can report it. You are protected in that yeah, sense. Yeah, you're protected in that sense. You can report the person saying that, you know, uh, there is a photo taken without our permission. Okay. All right. Good to know. Because I said it's been it's been cropping up a few times. Um, Devon and Deva is this, is with us this afternoon. You are more than welcome to reach out and pick his brains on any aspect of the law. We is a family law specialist, so we've had unsurprisingly lots of questions about inheritance, a few about divorce, amicable separations as well. Uh, before we get to the family law, Neil wants to ask you this: saying I'm trying to employ a new member of staff in my maintenance team's Filipino, but his ex employer is holding his passport and refusing to cancel the visa. He's given notice, worked the notice. Is there anything I or the company can do to help or is it to the employee to go to the Labour Department? Great question, Neil. Yeah, they can complain uh, in the Labour Department uh, saying that, you know, the previous employer is not cancelling the visa. Uh, That is one side of it. And uh, if somebody is holding the visa, you can even go directly to the uh, authorities and say, somebody is holding my passport. Because passport is a personal property of a person Nobody, no employer has the right to keep the passport. We had this when we um, had Loretta, our nanny, joining joining our family. This is going back nine years and she hadn't had her passport in two years. Hadn't been on holiday, didn't even know where her passport was. 
So when she moved into the house, it was there. It was like a mint on the pillow when she moved into, into <laughs> And it, it, it does boggle the mind that, unfortunately, this is something that a lot of employers will just say, you know, it's our policy. While you're working for us, the, your passport will be in the office safe. It is absolutely against the law. It's very simple. You can have all the policies you want in an organization, but it cannot be ultra virus to law. It cannot be against the law of the country. You cannot have policies in an organization. So you have to follow the law and no person is allowed to keep a passport of another person. We're here to clear up myths and misconceptions this afternoon. And of course, go to the text line next. Joining us from Baker Tilly Law Corporation, Devon and Mahadeva. Devon and Mahadeva is in the studio. He's the director and head of inheritance and personal law practice at Baker Tilly Law Corporation. Let's talk wills. Wills, wills, wills. We've had a number of questions and quite a lot of confusion around this. Um, Yahya has been in touch saying, under Sharia law, is a Muslim man entitled to his wife's inheritance that was left to her by her family? Yeah, it, it depends. I mean, like, uh, if, if she's alive while the time he got the inheritance, if she's alive, uh, then, of course, she has inherited it already. And then he has a share of inheritance when she passes away. Uh, for normally, as per Sharia, it's it's one fourth to the husband, and if there is no children, he gets one half. Okay, and that's as per the Hanafi table. And when it comes to a situation where your the wife is deceased, and uh, the parents have left some assets, all the legal heirs do have a right over that. Uh, asset which they have left behind, particularly in that uh, person's name. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I hope that helps. Um, Sunny's been, Sunny sounds perplexed. Okay. Yeah. Sunny says, I am so confused regarding wills. One lawyer has recommended DIFC, 15,000 dirhams for two wills plus lawyer fees of over 10,000, which had me out of breath for a while. Another saying registration with DIFC is absolutely not required and just having it filed at the lawyer's office is sufficient. To top the confusion, Abu Dhabi registry can be used and fees are 950, which is a huge difference. So now the question is, what protects us and our children the most? Interesting question. Um, See, what you have to understand is, in UE, the private wills do not work. It has to be public wills. In many of the countries, we can have a private will in a you sign and two witnesses sign or your lawyer signs. Uh, It's a valid document. But in UAE, for it to work in a court of law, it has to be a registered will. Of course, you have a choice of having the registry in uh, DIFC or the registry in ADJD, Abu Dhabi Judicial Department. The cost difference is there between ADJD and uh, DIFC. And uh, both are choices. And the other thing you have to understand is when it is ADJD, it's a mainland court, where in DIFC, it's an offshore court. So... Uh, when you get the probate, when a person passes away and you get a probate from DIFC, again, you have to go to the local court to implement that will. Okay. I'm just anticipating any questions coming in. Do you need to be on an Abu Dhabi visa in order to register a will in Abu Dhabi? You don't need to have a visa in UAE to register a will. You That's can a be whole topic. <laughs> yeah, you can be an investor in this country. 
uh, you can hold an asset, you can hold a business, you may not even have a visa to this country, you can still register your will in UAE. Okay, hope that helps. Devon Mahadeva with us today. I'm expecting more questions regarding wills, guardianship, power of attorney coming in on 4001. No name on this message and as I always say, not an issue. Don't worry about it. My company is cutting my housing allowance. Their excuse is that my spouse also works and should pay half. What do I do? Yeah, it's a, it's a company policy. If they are uh, breaking your contract, which they have written in the contract, you can take action against the company, saying that you know they're reducing your, uh, uh, in I mean your incentive. Would this be enough to warrant a completely new contract that this listener needs to sign in order to? Yes, they have pleasant? to have a new uh, contract to sign, and if he refuses, he can always look at some other option. Okay, um, a message here from Neil saying, what is the rule about security taking your Emirates ID to gain access to a building? So I'm guessing this is, you know, when you go in for a meeting or you go to someone's apartment, security takes your details, where are you visiting, takes your Emirates ID. Is that is that allowed? It's a common thing in uh, Dubai um, and they follow in most of the buildings for security reasons mm-hmm. and, uh, and we better play along with that. Yeah. And when you say security reasons in terms of people being authorized to enter in and out, but also I'm guessing, you know, if there was a fire to break out in terms of... Yes. Knowing. Okay. All right. It's, so, it's to keep tab of people who is in the building. Okay. All right. A message here saying Helen had to laugh I'm in the back of a car heading home and your legal expert just said it's illegal for an employer to hold a passport. My driver just announced that his employer has his passport. Okay. <laughs> Podcast is available if you want to share this with anybody who might be breaking the law. Um, a message here... Um, which I think is a really interesting one. And I just said we were going to have this from M. I want to ask about the difference between power of attorney for property and a will for inheritance. Uh, which of these is preferable in terms of safeguarding everyone's rights? When can the decision be disputed if all of that's the case? E.g., can a sibling dispute the will or power of attorney in this case in terms of selling the property? Also, is the law of inheritance the same throughout the Emirate? That's a lot of questions. I yeah. know. We've got three and a half minutes before the let, news. Let, let me <laughs> handle that. See, when you look at power of attorney, it's, 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 I, I love that question. This power of attorney and the will. Will comes into an effect after a person passes away. And power of attorney comes to an end when a person passes away. That's a very, very simple explanation. So you can have a power of attorney if you're not available to do something. You have somebody else to do something on your behalf. So you're not available, you're sick, you're, uh, you're indisposed. Then you can use a power of attorney. But it comes to an end the day the person passes away because there is no more power. Mm-hmm. And a will comes to an effect only when a person passes away. So they don't replace each other. There are two different uh, aspects of documents. Okay. Good distinction. Yeah. I'm still trying to understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when we're thinking about property um, yeah. and this, this message here, um, in terms of thing, a sibling, so in the case, can a sibling dispute the will or power of attorney in, in terms of selling the property? No. Uh, unless and until it's an inherited property and that sibling has a share in it. Okay. All right. Makes so sense. if it is an absolute property of yours, you can do whatever you like. Okay, hope that helps. That's just saying, I got a will in Dubai from a valid lawyer around 12 years ago when my kids were younger. Is my will still valid in the UAE? It should be. Uh, if, it, if it is a, a registered, uh, if it is a notarized will, it is uh, still valid. But it is ideal to do a registration. 12 years back, there was no registry in DIFC nor in ADJD. So it's, it's good to relook at the will after 12 years and register the document so that your probate becomes very easy. 
And presumably a lot can change in 12 years in terms of assets as well. Yes, and beneficiaries as well. Um, Gillian's saying, currently writing a will and guardianship for our child with a solicitor. Um, She's advised that our will and guardianship guardianship document must be registered at DIFC, 15,000 dirhams. If we don't do this, we essentially shouldn't bother with organising a will. Is that true? No. Um, it 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 doesn't have to be only in DIFC. You have a uh, you have the option of doing it in ADJD or DIFC. Um, so it's not strictly uh, DIFC. You have to do it. Okay. Lots of questions on this. Lots of questions. We've also yeah. had a number of messages asking about divorce, which is what we're going to turn our attentions to. Devon Mahadeva is with us through until five o'clock today. He is the director and the head of inheritance and personal law practice at Baker Tilly Law Corporation. <laughs> It is your legal clinic now joining us live in studio from Baker Tilly Law Corporation. David Mahadeva, he is the director, head of inheritance and personal law practice there. The lines are open. So if you've got any questions for him, and trust me, many of you do, uh, this is your chance. You can be completely anonymous on the text line. I've just given out all of the details. Um, we've had a number of divorce questions um, and I'm, I'm curious to get your take. we we haven't got much time. I'm like, no offence to you two, but I might have to ditch a song for you. And I don't do that for just anyone, OK? Yeah. <laughs> um, we've had a message here from M saying, Hi both. My husband and I are divorcing. We've drawn up an amicable agreement between us. Yes. Um, we need to submit that back to the lady handling our case at the courts. And I've also been given a court date. My question is, how do we present our agreement? At the minute, it's just written our wording and not formal phrasing. It's just in a word document. Do we need to formalise it somehow? Does it need to be translated into Arabic? Um, would really welcome some relevant information. Um, it's ideal to have legal help in drafting it. And also it has to be in, in Arabic when it has to be submitted to the court. So the, the right translation has to be done uh, because if, if there is any issue later, the Arabic uh, document gets upheld. Okay. Uh, so it's ideal to get some legal help to formulate the document as well as uh, uh, get it translated to Arabic and that's proper translation and then submit to the court. Okay. Um, and a message here, and I, I can't unfortunately go into all of the details just for anonymity reasons, but a message saying, I've been in an abusive relationship and I've come to the end of my tether as my child is now bearing witness to this. I'm from overseas, as is my husband, and I need to know what rights I have um, for my child as I'm new to the UAE. As a single mum, can I sponsor my child as I've heard I need an NOC, which he will not agree to sign? Um, and is she safe with me? Can he technically take her? Uh the ideal thing to do is without an NOC, a lady cannot sponsor a child. Um, the man has to give the NOC. The father has to give an NOC. That's the rule here. But when it comes to uh, you want to have custody of the child, it's better to file a petition for custody and get a custody order from the court. So then you're safe and sound mm-hmm. uh, to have a child. And uh, from what you said, I, I find that it's a she, it's a girl child. Uh, it depends on the age, but um, if if she's of young age, then the mother automatically gets the custody of the child. So get a custody order and you can sponsor. She's following up saying we've been married less than a year. Um, I don't know if I should do this in my home country, oh, sorry, here or back in the country we married in. Um, so much is going to depend on the religion and, and where, where you married. If it's all right with you, I'd love to connect you with this listener, just be able to get some advice if that's okay. Or yeah, we, we can do it here, uh, depending on the type of 
the issue. Okay. Um, anonymous message here for you saying, good evening, we're, in, we're Indian passport holding Muslim couples, Indian Muslim, with a 12-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl, both born in Dubai. My wife grew up in the Middle East, runs a business here, while my work primarily remains in India and Europe. My children are linked as dependents to my wife's UA resident permit to facilitate travel. Also, my independent work permit is from her company. My wife is contemplating filing for divorce here in the UAE, as I would like to relocate the family back to India to be close to my family. What are the custody laws? I know I've just thrown that at you. I didn't prep you on that's just come in. So are you able (laughs) to speak to that? No issues. See, uh, depending on the child's uh, age, the mother gets custody of the children. So if she's going to stay here and if she's going to get custody of the children, she will get to keep the children here. Uh, I would advise it's to amicably sort out and settle the issue. If you if you want to divorce, then you know amicably settle off and uh, decide on the children's custody and the maintenance. Mm-hmm. We've spoken about this before in terms of the importance of having a child-centric divorce. Yes, it's very important because otherwise it traumatizes the children. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? We hear so many couples saying, you know, we're staying together in an unhappy marriage for the kids. Um, and <laughs> Very true. psychologists will tell you time and time again, it's often better to have two happily divorced parents than a couple that are unhappily married. Unhappily married and give the trauma to the children. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, let's see. I'm going to try and squeeze in a couple more questions. Saying One here saying, I want to stay anonymous. My employer has a clause of 60-day notice period, which is mentioned in my contract. The new company that I'm applying for doesn't want to wait 60 days. They want they can only offer me employment if I can join within 30 days. Is there a way I can walk out on the contract? Since I'm sure my employer will not agree to release me early or even buy me out of the notice period. What are yep. options here? No, if you have if you have signed a contract mutually with your employer for a 60 days, you have to serve the 60 days if the employer insists on. Okay. Um, message from Jay saying, hello both. Is an employee eligible for maternity four months after joining a company? Also, does the company need to pay this employee during their maternity leave? The employee did not disclose the pregnancy at the time of joining the company. Whichever it is, if you have completed one year with a organization, you get your 45 days of maternity leave. This is only four months after joining. Which is paid. Um, so here, it's it's between the employer and the employee to sort it out. Okay. Um, I'm just going to squeeze in one last question, which is basically about buying a property as a couple where he doesn't want to put her name on the title deed. What do you advise couples when it comes to buying property together? And, you know, worst case scenario, they do could be do end up separating where do you stand in terms of that asset as a wife if your name is not on that proper title property deed if you it depends on the law which applies to you it depends on your country your religion uh, what it applies so if it is not a joint asset it is bought by the husband it stays in his name you cannot claim but if it is a joint property yes you own it 50 percent so you can even in the event of a divorce you can claim that 50 percent uh on a, on a partnership basis. Okay. Whew. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. We um we were talking about divorce a couple of weeks ago. I, I only realised on that day that it was the most popular year in the entire sorry most popular day in the entire year where couples file for divorce. Apparently, the first Monday in September is when we see a big spike 
Are you busy with divorces right now, Devnant? I am. There yeah. you go. It's a September thing. Thank you so much for your time. Um, Devnant Mahadeva, can you can find him at Baker Tilly Law Corporation, where he is the director there when it comes to personal law and inheritance. We do talk law on the show every single Monday afternoon. Devnant, an absolute pleasure as ever. now with Robin Sharma, that globally acclaimed author, leadership guru, renowned for his insights on personal development, peak performance. He's had bestsellers like The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, The 5am Club, and he aims to motivate people worldwide, harnessing, harnessing their potential and really encouraging them to lead extraordinary lives. Now, I recently spoke to him during a trip to the UAE. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I want to get into a few different topics today. I want to talk about productivity and ambition. I obviously want to talk about leadership as well. And I wondered if you're able to kick off with a little bit of a definition around leadership. You know, we're in such a rapidly changing world. Why do you feel like it's more important than ever? Well, you're right. I mean, a lot of us are suffering from busy being busy. A lot of us are addicted to white screens. A lot of us are, I say this humbly and respectfully, but spending our finest hour chasing trivial pursuits that will amount to very little at the end of our lives. And so I think leadership is less about a title. It's less about the money you have. It's less about your station in life or your possessions. I think leadership is an approach. And no matter where you live, whether it's in Dubai or anywhere in the UAE or anywhere in the world, uh, everyone has a chance to show leadership because leadership is about finding solutions to problems. Leadership is about radiating positivity in a world of increasing negativity. Leadership is about leaving people better than we found them, whether at work or out on the street. Leadership is about being creative versus suffering from too much, you know, doing, living the same year 85 times and calling it a life so leadership is incredibly important for a human being because i'll simply say we have a choice every day home we can walk out in the world and we can be victims or we can be leaders but changing that mindset is easier said than done um yes. so we're going to come on to the switching that mindset but we can't all be leaders surely there needs to be some followers otherwise the word leadership loses all meaning well i think context is very important so when it's at work Sure, you need the positional leader, absolutely, and you need a, let's call it a structural hierarchy. And even yet at work, too many people show up like a victim, and they show up like, oh, I can't do anything. Here's They make excuses. And so even if you don't have a title at work, you can still be innovative. You can see still still see the, the opportunity within a problem. You can even if you don't have a title, let's say you're absolutely frontline, you can radiate possibility, you can go the extra mile for customers. And then in the world, we again, I'll get back to how do you live a great life? You, you show leadership. My, my latest book is The Everyday Hero Manifesto. And I think, Helen, we all have heroism inside of us, but too many of us have lost our connection to our creativity, We've lost our connection to our our power in many ways. We've lost our connection to our, our sense of soulfulness. And so a lot of people are suffering right now. I, I think potential unexpressed turns to pain. And I'll repeat that again because I think it's so important. Potential unexpressed turns to pain. Mm -hmm. 
when we're little kids, we're born into our potential. We're more intimate with our potential. And then the world starts to program us. Yeah, we get oh, leaders are limiting beliefs being put in place by parents, teachers, the world. You know, we start to lose sight of those possibilities. And that's not to say, you know, not everybody is capable of absolutely everything. You know, I think that's it, there's, there's place for everybody. And I love the idea of everyday heroes and people showing up in all different walks of life and different earning potential in different industries. Um, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about that lead without a title. You know, what are if someone perhaps does have leadership ambitions, but then maybe their role doesn't really lend itself in that space, what are some of the strategies that you've advised people um, in order to really fulfill that leadership potential? Well, Helen, I think every a job is only a job if we choose to see it as a job. And all work has dignity, all work has labor. And even if your boss is not watching you, I hear this a lot. Well, if I lead without a title, if I go the extra mile, if I'm excellent and innovative, if I'm a merchant of wow, my manager doesn't see it or my boss doesn't recognize it. And I would say, but your soul recognizes you. Your conscience sees what you're doing. I think we all have a, let's call it a, an egoic self and we all have a heroic self. And this is just, this is just the better part of us, our wisdom, our bravery. We all have that part of us, even though we might not think we have that part of us. And so I think the world has a very fair accounting system. And I think good people, good things happen to people who, good things happen to people who, who do good things. And so living an ethical life, living an excellent life, working hard, joining the 5 a.m. club, having a portfolio of passions that is interesting for everyone is uh, something that's going to benefit us. You've said that there's no point in being successful if you're unsuccessful inside. Can you expand on that for a little bit? It feels, it feels linked to what you were just explaining. Well, I think, I think you hinted at that when you said not everyone can do everything. And I'm not in any way, whether it's in the Everyday Hero Manifesto or my book, The 5 a.m. Club, these are not books designed only for people who want to play at world class, who want to build big companies, who want to be sports superstars or masters of the craft. The great thing about human life is we get to define success on our own terms. Well, we can. So in- we can, in theory, but we still have these societal expectations of home ownership, certain amount of salary and I'm thinking about parenthood as well you know where we look at stay-at-home parents and the world going well you're just a mum that's that's not just fast how how can you break out of some of those well if if you'll if I may I just want to finish that thought and I I know you'll you'll want to talk about that other important idea Um, so success without a sense of soul is 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 not real success and I, I really do believe we all have the power, even if we might not recognize it, but we do have the power to create life on our own terms. And I think if we become a success in the world and we, we live a life that other people call successful and want us to live, but we don't live our, a life that is aligned with our values and if we don't do the things that make our eyes light up, then we end up being successful in the world but missing out on living a life. And so to your point, about, well, we have structural constructs and expectations. I hear you and I agree with you, but I think that can also be used as an excuse 
not to handcraft the life that we love. It's, it's very easy to say, well, I'm in this situation. I'm in this job. Um, I'm a mother. I'm a father. Like I'm, I'm a father as well, and I'm not holding myself out to be a guru. But Helen, we have so much more power to have the health we want, the work we want, the love we want, the life we want. I'd say far too many people are giving away, giving away their power to excuses that they recite so many times, they actually hypnotize themselves to thinking they are true. Robin Sharma, in really fascinating. Next, I'm going to be asking him what he thinks about the whole hustle and grind concept. Spoiler alert, I am over it. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. With King's College Hospital London in Dubai, bringing the best of British healthcare to the UAE. In conversation with Robin Sharma, best-selling author, leadership expert, recognised for his influential work such as the Everyday Hero Manifesto and the 5am Club, his insights have made him a really prominent figure in the field of self-improvement, leadership development, aiming to inspire individuals and organisations worldwide. I was in conversation with him just recently when he was over here at the UAE. Robin Sharma, I've got a confession for you. I'm sick of being told to hustle harder, be more productive, look for the next big thing, have more ambition. Why can't we just be content sometimes with what we've built and enjoy it? Your confession is my confession. I've I've been evangelizing that message for over a decade, I'm not a subscriber to the hustle and grind culture. In people's, people sometimes challenge me and say, well, you talk about the 5 a.m. club. And, you know, the book has become a movement of millions of people who get up at 5 a.m. And some of them are entrepreneurs, Helen, and some of them get up at 5 a.m. to get a head start on their productivity. And that's absolutely fine. Who are we to judge? If that's important for someone, that's absolutely fine. But a lot of people have joined the 5 a.m. club because it gives them a time to pray, gives them a time to feed their soul, gives them a time to read a beautiful book, gives them a time to walk their dog, gives them a time to pursue art. So um, I am not a subscriber to the hustle and grind culture. I never have been. But I actually, this, this might be a confession to you. I think the world has gone a little to the other extreme. So for many years, it was hustle and grind. And if you are not working 24-7 and climbing your personal Mount Everest, then you should feel guilty and there's something wrong with you. Yes. And I don't believe, and I also don't believe, why do we pedestal the billionaire but not the street sweeper? Why is, why is the teacher's work viewed as less honorable than the billionaire's work or the titan's work? Mm-hmm. But, so I don't believe in hustle and grind, but I think sometimes in this world right now, Hard work is getting a bad rap, and well, I think I think and I think hard work has dignity. It allows us to serve. It allows us to see our talents. Well, I was talking to a friend last night, uh, saying I was going to be speaking to you today, and he is, you know, country manager, MD of big company here in the MENA region, and his boss had said to him recently, "Oh, you know, we should be looking at this role for you in a couple of years." And he was like, "I'm all right, thanks." Do you know what? Yep. I- great work-life balance. I can see my kids most days by 6pm. I'm earning exactly what I need to be earning in terms of 
investments, property, payments, and looking at that job and what that potential for that job be would be financially, maybe an extra 20,000 dirhams a month, for example. He's like, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. But there's so much pressure on us to be like, well, how can you stagnate? How can you be in a, in a role for you know, three years and not be thinking about the next thing. And I'm much the same. I don't tie my happiness to the next job title. Financially, for me, it's about, as you alluded to there, living by my values, feeling being, feeling content. So what about building a life outside of, of jobs as well? Because that's what he was alluding to is that, you know, why wouldn't I think about exploring other passions and adding to my life rather than adding to my work? The great thing about a human life is we get to value what we value. And for some people, like your MD friend, others will say they want to go to the very top. And a lot of athletes have that mindset. They want to be the BIW, best in the world. Great. Good for them. And then you've got your friend who says, I love where I'm at. Perfect. If that works for him, amazing. Kurt Vonnegut and Joseph Heller, two eminent authors, were in a, they were at a cocktail party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island. And Kurt Vonnegut looked at Joseph Heller and said, um, hey, Joe, how does it feel knowing that our host, the billionaire, made more money yesterday than you've made through your royalties for the entire history of your bestseller, Catch-22? And Joseph Heller looked back at his friend and said, well, I don't mind it because I have something that he'll never have, the feeling of enough. And so I think wealth comes in many forms. And for some, it's money. And again, we're, who are we to judge that is wrong if it's right for someone else? But to me, one of my most beautiful weeks of my life was two weeks ago. I spent one week in London walking the streets with my mother. And she'd flown in from Canada. And we'd walk through Covent Garden. And I took her out to some long lunches. I took her for her birthday dinner at a great Greek restaurant. She shared her wisdom with me. And it was just a father, uh, just a, a, a son and a mother walking the streets of that enchanting city. And to me, that's worth more than all the money in the world. I think, I mean, I'm reading a lot of Ramit Sethi now, a bit, so about building your rich life, which I think is really interesting because it's so it's so individual. Um, and you're exactly that. You know, who is to say that it's money, it's time, it's connection. Um, and it's sometimes it comes down to, yes, blocking out these exteriors and these forces and these expectations. But sometimes it's fear of success as well that can that can hold us back. It's actually, I don't want to admit to myself that I do want this because what if I fail? How do you feel about failure or perceived failure? Well, you, you make a really interesting point. The key is what is the truth? If the truth is we're very happy where we are, I'm going talking about your MD friend as an example. If that's the truth of what's going on inside, perfect. If someone is saying, oh, I don't need too much, I'm happy where I am, but the truth is because they're afraid of their greatness, they're afraid of being laughed at, they're afraid of launching business and failing, they're afraid of leaving their friendship circle, then I think it's a very different thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do I think? And then what do I think about failure? I, I think failure is wonderful. 
I, I say let's uh, give failure a standing ovation. I've grown the most from my failures. I've learned whatever wisdom I have from my sufferings. I have learned how strong I am when my when I've been down on my knees. Failure has a bad rap in society. I think failure is the price of ambition. You know, Rumi, the great poet, said, keep breaking your heart over and over again until it opens. Well, how do you open your heart, let's say, to love? You fail. How do you build a great company or a great team? You figure out, you make a lot of hiring mistakes, you get your face all bloodied, and then you figure out, oh, I guess I know how to hire now. Mm-hmm. Robin Sharma, whom conversation next about how leaders can manage not only their own mental health, but their employees too. Catching up now with Robin Sharma, a Canadian author, motivational speaker, leadership expert, former lawyer as well. He's best known for his self-help and personal development books, particularly The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari that catapulted him into fame. His work focuses on leadership, personal growth and achieving your potential. I spoke to him recently when he was in the UAE. I want to come back to leadership, if you don't mind. I know we're a bit crunched for time, but... Um, you know, mental health and well-being post-pandemic, absolutely the forefront. And I wondered for you know leaders in this age, how can you foster an environment of culture and well-being and resilience um, right now? When we're looking at the modern workplace, what, what insights would you give to people who want to strike that balance between success and striving and bottom line with ultimately taking care of their employees? Well, I'm going to come at that very intelligent question, Helen. From a different way and let's not expect our positional leaders to be responsible for what's going on within ourselves i don't just believe that mindset is everything like a lot of people believe mental wellness is important right in um, the 5 a.m club and the everyday hero manifesto I, t- I teach a concept called the four interior empires and mindset is only one of them mental wellness is important but what about the second empire emotional wellness the third interior empire, which I call health set, um, physical wellness. And what about the fourth interior empire, which I call soul set, which is spiritual wellness. And so what I would suggest, and it's not going to surprise you, but start your day at 5 a.m., join the 5 a.m. club, take one hour for yourself. I call it the victory hour. Your, your, your viewers and listeners are not going to like me for about 90 days until the habit gets installed. But as human beings, we have a gift, and the gift is neuroplasticity, which is the ability for us to grow and adapt to new ideas through practice. And after practicing this new habit, we'll be able to get up early. And taking that one hour from five to six every day, that victory hour, and praying, meditating, writing in a journal, reviewing our goals, reading something good for our soul, or good for our minds or hearts, is a great way to take responsibility for, for our own personal wellness. Tell me, tell me talk briefly about the 5am club because having <laughs> numerous um, experts in sleep, we talk about different chronotypes that simply evolutionary, we've needed people to wake up and fall asleep at different times. So as a society, as a community, as cave people, our space, our health, our survival is protected. How do you describe, subscribe to that when it comes to some people simply are not built to be awake at that time? Well, I've heard this, you know, people have um, have said, well, what about night owls? I'm familiar with the 
the books and the science on sleep. One of the chapters in the 5 a.m. club, because people sometimes criticize and say, well, I'm not going to get up at 5 a.m. because I need my sleep. Well, there's actually a chapter in the 5 a.m. club called The Essentialness of Sleep. I believe sleep is not a luxury, it's a necessity. So I'm aware of some of the science. I would also offer for hundreds and hundreds of years, however, sages, warriors, holy women, holy men, holy people have trained themselves to adapt to rising of the sun. In India, there's a, a very powerful concept known for thousands of years called, uh, I believe it's called Brahmamurti, which is the very special time between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. And they find that's the best time to meditate, the best time to pray, and the best time to read holy books. Because your mind is clean, your spirit has slept, the imprint and the, the impression of the wisdom is most powerful. I think a lot of people who go into the military, they might be night owls. They train themselves to get up early. You've got no choice. You mentioned being a mother. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, was, um, I was a young mother and I, I had to do it. There's many cultures where they get up early to pray, as, as, as we know very well. So I hear the science. My experience has been many millions of people have read the 5M Club. They've trained themselves to get up early, to run a marathon, to read, to get better at their work, to build their businesses or whatever. And they seem extremely happy. But I'm not someone who would ever say, do something if it doesn't feel right for you. But if you're open to getting up early and joining the 5, 5 a.m. club for better health and more productivity and a richer life in this world where we all have so much on our plates, mm-hmm. taking some time for yourself, then, then I'd be an encourager of can I ask, I, I recently listened to an interview with James Nestor, whose book Breath is really, really fascinating. And he was talking about how if he was to go back and write, again, write it again, what he would change or omit or add. And I wondered if you had any reflections, um, lastly, about the 5am club, looking back um, on some of the feedback you've had from people, whether it is, you know, recent research. Is there anything, if you were to do a 2023 edition, how it would be different? I wouldn't change a word. I I wrote that book over four years, the Five M Club. I wrote it from the deepest place within me to serve and help people. I wrote it based on twenty years of my experience teaching the Five M Club method. And um, you know, I recently read um, Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act. I don't know if you've read it, but it, one of the things that stood out is he said, you know, art is your best art is a work done in a certain moment in time. And I think any artist, you know, whether a writer like me or what you do, Helen, your art, we do the best that we can do. And when we look back at something, sure, we can make changes. But if you did the absolute best you could do, mm-hmm. if you stretched yourself to the jagged edges of your potential and you put it out in the world, then honor that magic. Don't go back and try to be a perfectionist and change it. I feel that way about an awful lot of decisions and situations that all you can do is your best in the moment. And if that helps you sleep at night and you feel like come back to that value piece that you did everything you could with the information that you had, it's it's perfect. And it might not be the outcome, but you made the right decision at that time. You know, I, I once heard a podcaster say, 
because we all look back at relationships, especially relationships, right? Wow, like, you know, why did I do that? Or why did I make that mistake? Or, I mean, life is just like that. And I heard a podcaster say, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It always does. And to, <laughs> and to me, you know, like, and what, isn't it uh, Maya Angelou? When you know better, you can do better. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, um, <laughs> explain the incredible exes that I've had. So thank you for that. <laughs> we, we just need to give ourselves permission to be human, you know, and to wear our scars as medals of valor for the lives that we've had the bravery to live. I think that's the perfect note to end on, Robin Sharma. Thank you so, so much. For anyone that wants to find out more, I know you've got some fantastic free resources, your Everyday Hero Manifesto, workbooks and all sorts. What's the best way of reaching out to you, connecting with you and availing of some of your your infinite wisdom online? I'm on Instagram at robinsharma.com. I have hundreds of YouTube videos. People can find my my channel and and the books. Five Empire and the Everyday Hero Manifesto are in bookstores. So thank you. It's been a real pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Great questions, and uh, I, I've I've loved the conversation. You, you challenged me to to think think about some things, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's great to have you back in the UAE, and I'll see you online along with your many millions of followers. Robin Sharma, wishing you a wonderful day ahead. Thank you so so much. We love introducing you to inspiring people and sometimes that can be entrepreneurs. We've had many an expert in this studio now. It's a a very special family indeed. Nick Watson and his daughter Tia, record breaker, spoiler alert, they are part of Team Angel Wolf. They're on a mission to encourage community inclusion through sports, community activities and yes, throwing a Guinness World Record into the mix. Tia, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I've never met a 16-year-old Guinness World Record breaker before. So congratulations, I guess, are first in order. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to hear a little bit more about what it took to have the certificate that's in the studio. But um, I'd love to start with you, Nick, if you don't mind. For anyone that is not familiar with the story of your family, would you mind giving us some background and tell us what you've been up to over the last few years? Um, yeah, look, I think we started in when Rio came into our lives, now 20. Um, unfortunately, at four, when he was about four, he had his first seizure and we realised life was going to be very different from then on. Um, his diagnose means that he's got a very rare chromosome disorder, so it's called 1Q44 deletion, so it's a part of the chromosome that's deleted. And it leads to seizures, obviously non-verbal and other challenges that he has in his life. And um, we just kind of came to realise, being in Dubai now for 25 years, that how could we give back? How could we start including people with determination? And we started to race with Rio. So in 2014, we did our first race together. We're now... 500 races in wow uh we've covered i think with mum tia me with rio i've covered about fourteen thousand kilometers of swimming cycling and running so i swim and tia swims with pulling rio in a kayak we've got a special bike rio sits on the front and we've got a chair we run together and um, so i think we've covered the equivalent distance from dubai i think we're somewhere in new zealand at the moment <laughs> um and the whole purpose was to make sure that Everyone's included, everyone's welcome, and we've done it through sport. Mm-hmm. And um, so we set up a non-profit, and the goal was to make a difference and include Rio. Well, that's absolutely the case. Tell us a little bit about some of your biggest memories of these races, Tia. I mean, mentioning there about swimming with a kayak. Um, where have you been in the world, and what have been the most meaningful right here in the UAE for you? Racing with Rio? Um, 
my like my biggest like memories of the Rio. Well, one of my first races with the Rio was a triathlon, and I remember, I don't remember what year it was, but I remember we were down at the waters and we we're getting ready for the swim, like getting our goggles ready, caps, and then all of a sudden we see Sheikh Hamdan, the Crown Prince of Dubai, walking over to us, um, and then he ends up coming over to us, and we have like a good chat like for like 10 minutes before my race. And it was a very good confidence boost for I'm me. <laughs> Ooh, I mean, if and you're then, gonna get a pep talk. Yeah, <laughs> my literally. Goodness. And then we started the swim and then I came out and then I realized he was still there with us and he was actually filming it. So I continued the race, taking Ray out the kayak, went for the bike and then the run. And on the run, I turn around and he's still there and he's actually running with us and he's filming it all. And then we cross the finish line. There's a great iconic picture of us. And then I just crossed the finish line and I realized I've just raced and was shake hand down. Like he literally just videoed it all and ran with me. It's and then about like the next day, we went on Instagram and he made like a video. So all those clips he had done before, he made it into one video, posted it, and it got like 1.9 million views. Wow. Probably a million of those is probably dad. <laughs> not gonna lie. Click, but yeah. Click. Watch again, watch again. <laughs> what kind of support does it, I mean, obviously from royal family all the way to supporters that have been with you from, from day one, what, what does that mean to you as, as a family to have that kind of support behind you, Nick? Oh, I think just amazing. We've, you know, we've been so fortunate to be here in Dubai for so long and obviously inclusion's at the forefront for us. So to be able to do events and obviously have His Highness always come over and say hello. And the loveliest thing, when we talk about inclusion and where the kind of journey's taken us, his Highness will always come over and say hello to Rio before me. And for me, that means the world. That That's the message. That's what we're trying to do and mm-hmm. um, to make sure that Rio isn't just this person with disabilities and he's sat by the side. Um, he's a part of our family and it makes us feel at home living here. And if role models and leadership comes at that level, then we are so blessed to be here in Dubai and the UAE. I think what your family is a beautiful example of is we can talk about inclusion in quite kind of wishy-washy abstract <laughs> ways. And I think sometimes that word inclusion loses meaning. In, and does that make sense? And that's not to say we shouldn't be talking about it. It's that we need to think about the real life applications for that word and, and what can be done about it. And what you guys do so well is that humanity side to be thinking about brothers and sisters and mums and dads and you know here we are out in the world doing our thing setting an amazing example and i have to say look like having an awful lot of fun (laughs) so let's talk world records tell us about what certificate you brought into the studio today what have you been officially awarded So back in March, Rio and I did a Guinness World Record as a triathlon. We did an Olympic triathlon. And the record is the fastest time to do an Olympic triathlon whilst carrying a person. Whoa. Okay, let's. Okay, for for those of us who don't frequently do triathlons, what distances are we talking about? Okay, so the swim is a 1,500 meters, and then the bike is 40k, and then the run is 10k. And how were you doing this with. And I'm going to try and be delicate about this. You are strong, but you're not a big person. <laughs> no, here. no. Okay, so can we talk about some logistics around this? What, what were you having to do at each stage to make sure that Rio was with you at every step? Um, like how I bring him? Okay, so the swim, he's in like a kayak, and then there's like a little strap connected to my ankles, and then I pull him from there. And the bike, we've got this cool like extended bike that has a seat right at the front, and Rio will sit there, and then we've got our own running chairs, that Rio will sit at the front and I push him along. Oh my 
I mean, the thought of doing those kind of distances anyway is <laughs> mind-blowing to me. I can't run a bath, never mind the triathlon. <laughs> so tell us then about how it went on the day and some of the training that led you up to that point. Um, the training, well, I always was training with my dad. Um, it got very strict all of, all of a sudden because we actually we didn't have much notice we had like maybe two months notice before um, the actual race day itself. Um, we were trying to train every day, twice a day even. Um, yeah. Make it sound like, yeah, I was like, I was ready. <laughs> I was, I was but good, also it's a very go. big mental game. It was all mental. Like the swim, I was very confident about. I had actually a really good swim. And even on the on race day and on the bike, um, because it was on Deer Islands, and if you've ever been, it's there's like no protection, like wind-wise. And if you cycle with wind, you know it's hard. And especially pushing Rio as well just makes it even more harder. Can I just jump in there? The bike, by the way, weighs, and Rio is 85 kilos. Yeah. So that's what she's pushing. So the cyclists listening at the moment, their lovely carbon fiber bikes <laughs> weigh about seven, eight. So it just puts it into perspective. When I ride with Rio, it's hard. It's really hard. So I could see on the day with the wind how hard she was pushing because we had an allocated time for her yeah. to finish to get the record. Yeah. So for us to get the record, we had to do in under three hours and 45 minutes. And the bike, I don't know how many loops, but it was like seven loops. And then the wind was coming from every direction. And it was just really hot as well. And it wasn't easy at all. Nick, and then the, sorry, go on. It's all right. And then on the run, um, just before I started the run, I started getting a bit nervous because I had a timer with me to see how much time I had left. And then I was kind of doubting myself, like, what if I don't get it and stuff? But I pushed my way through and we got it. Certainly did. We've got Tia and Nick with us today, part of Team Angel Wolf. What was it like watching your kids out there thinking about what was at stake? Do you know what? It's... <laughs> To do a Guinness World Record, there's an enormous amount of logistics that need to be that need to be obviously um, sent along when you've done the actual attempt. And for me, I have to be honest with you, typical dad, OCD, um, my main thing was to make sure Tia had all those criteria. So we had like, th she had three GPSs on, you know what I mean? There was, she had two watches on, there was another one in the pocket, because we had to obviously follow her time, make sure she'd done, because obviously if we didn't have these kind of elements, she wouldn't have got the record. Mm -hmm. So I'll be honest with you, without taking films and everything else, I wasn't really in the moment. And it's only afterwards that you kind of go, oh, wow, what she achieved and she crossed the line and she did it under the time. But then you kind of go for the next three weeks pre preparing to send off everything to Guinness World Records. It's rigorous. It's mm -hmm. a, a down to a T and, and rightly so. And it was brilliant. But I have to admit, it is very stressful. And then... It took 12 weeks for that process to go through, even knowing would we get the record. Mm -hmm. So we didn't know, and we didn't. So it was a, how it was you, a kind of a whole process. How <laughs> do you find out then that you've got a Guinness World Record? Is, there, is it a phone call? Is it an email? Nick, it's an email. It's an email that finally comes back. And th th I have to admit, the office here is absolutely fantastic. So they were following us and obviously doing everything we had any issues with, making sure obviously that we got the record. But yeah, I'll be honest with you, it was 12 weeks. We knew that she got it, but, but you, you, don't know. Know. Yeah. you don't know. You don't know. And loads of things kept coming back. Can you send this? Can you send this? And I got stressed again at 12 weeks in. And I'm like, oh, no, what have we done wrong? Oh. And um, then finally you get the lovely email. I do urge you to go over to the Instagram. It's as easy as it gets. Team Angel Wolf. <laughs> There's two, two posts there that 
there's a video and then there's much needed celebrations as well kind of highlighting this um running out of time but i guess i wanted to ask you nick if you don't mind Mm. Given the last couple of decades, and I guess looking at the world through a different lens because of everything that Rio's brought to your life and everything <laughs> you've been contributing to the UA community and beyond, what would you love to see in the next 20 years when it comes to inclusion? Look, I think um, for us, everything has to start at home um, when we talk about inclusion. And I think um, when you used the word a little bit earlier about what should inclusion be, for us, it's um, making sure that everyone is welcome. And for me, that needs to start at home. Um, you know, welcoming your neighbour, obviously learning a little bit about terminology, if there's a requirement to learn a little bit of sign language. So as parents, people feel comfortable in their environment. So by the time they step out the door and they go to the shopping mall, you know, they're a little bit more at ease rather than always, always been a little bit on edge. And then that will run through the rest of your life. So obviously, you know, those parents out there, you know, trying to get their child first time into a centre of persons with disabilities into a school and schooling, etc., it's enormously stressful and I think you talked a little bit earlier about obviously someone with autism uh, going into the workplace so there's lots of stresses ahead so I think for us we just want to make sure that everyone starts to include everyone it doesn't matter where you're from who you are uh, if you have a disability or you don't have a disability I think we live in a world that you know we we learned in COVID how important family is and if we can start the fundamentals and include everyone from that element then everything will naturally happen it will happen in the workplace it happened at school it will happen in the playground and um i think it's a a big step um but it's starting to happen and that's why we live here it is and i think it's really important to have and i don't use this term lightly tier role models such as yourself oh. you know i think teens get a really bad rap for many reasons <laughs> <laughs> but my goodness what an incredible young woman you are Thank you. um what's your what are your hopes for the future personal professional I can tell by the look in your eyes <laughs> you want to watch what, what are you planning now just 16 years old what's next like challenges or like job wise whatever you want the world's your oyster well my future goals as in like races is there's a 70.3 ironman in dubai and you have to be 18 to do that so basically, that's double the Olympic distance. Um, I really want to do that with Rio when I'm 18. And I also want to do six international world marathons. If anyone can, that. it's you. Team Angel Wolf, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us thank today. You. Again, thank huge, you. huge congratulations. Everyone pop over to that Instagram, check out the video. It is something to behold indeed. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.